Welcome to the very first bonus episode of the Storyteller Podcast. A huge thank you to all of you who are listening to this. You are my patrons, and I couldn't be more grateful. Really, thank you for helping me be one step closer to my goal of becoming a full-time storyteller. In this first bonus episode, we're going to learn more about the backstory of Henry Hudson. I'm not sure if you remember, but Henry was first mentioned in the city of Eldon. Like Troy and his brothers and friends, Henry arrived from Earth, visited the city of Eldon and Russo before heading to Nidonia. This account was written down in one of Russo's books by Henry, who is actually a well-known English explorer. Henry disappeared from Earth in 1611, and now has a bay, river, and town named after him in the Americas. It is clear from his account that Henry never realized he was, in fact, on a completely new planet. He instead believed he had discovered a new world, like that of Columbus, but still on Earth, even though King Eldon told him differently. Rumors of far-off lands with giants and mysterious creatures were common in Henry's day on Earth, and it seemed he chose to believe this rather than the seemingly impossibility of interplanetary space travel. Here is part of his journal entry that was copied down by Jack from the Great Library of Russo while we stayed in Castone. An entry from the book The History of the City of Elden, Volume 4, as told by Henry Hudson. As I am about to leave the safety of the city of Elden in my quest to return home on a journey that is said to be most dangerous, I feel the need to write down a summary of my remarkable expedition thus far. I can only assume that the Almighty has more lands and passages for me to discover, for it is quite impossible that I would have survived this long without his help. I was born in the year of our Lord 1567 in Hoddesdon, England, to a good merchant family. I moved to London when I was seven, before being sent to live with my uncle John at the age of twelve. It was there in Southampton that I first came to know the sea. I instantly fell in love. The swaying of the waves below my feet as we sailed towards enigmatic distant ports filled me with excitement. My uncle was a partner in a small trading company and I spent the remainder of my childhood practically living aboard his vessels. I proved to be an excellent navigator and was effectively running several of my uncle's sea routes by the age of 16. Like my parents before him, my uncle suddenly fell ill and passed away just after my 18th birthday. I was able to start a family of my own and spent many years working for my uncle's partners, trading throughout the Mediterranean. It was during this time I had my first of many near-death experiences. Late in the summer of 1588, our ship, like many vessels of that time, was outfitted to repel the invasion of Spain and their infamous Spanish Armada. We were sent on a mission to attack the anchored armada near the French port of Calais. Our small trading vessel sailed alongside some of the most magnificent warships of England. In the wee hours one morning, we quietly crept up on the armada and lit the fire ships, plowing them into our enemies with great success 
and causing catastrophic damage and chaos to our surprised foes. After the battle, the men and I cheered as a great sense of accomplishment came over us. We had defended our home, and the feeling was indescribable as we started to sail back towards England. Unfortunately, just as we were pulling away from the inflamed ships, cannonballs came tearing out of the darkness, ripping through our vessel, tearing it to shreds. shipmates were killed as pieces of the ship flew in every direction and we quickly sunk. I managed to grab hold of a piece of the debris and stayed mostly out of the cold sea. About two hours later, in the early night, I was picked up by a small Spanish boat that was searching for survivors. I was then taken to the Spanish Netherlands and locked up in the most horrible prison inside a small walled town. It was there over the span of many years that I suffered in the most terrible way. I was continually tortured and questioned by these dreadful men. They attempted every possible method to collect information I did not have. These were the longest years of my life. Then, one late summer's day, one of the guards came to our dark, damp room and led us to a sunny courtyard where he suddenly unlocked our chains and said we were free to go. I was in complete shock and disbelief, as were the others. Was this another game of torture? Luckily, it was not. We truly were free to go. It was August of 1604, almost exactly 16 years later. Unbeknownst to us, the English and Spanish had finally signed a treaty, ending the 19-year Anglo-Spanish War. I was weak, frail, and dressed in rags with no money as I walked out of that corner of hell a free man with my new good friend and cellmate for all those years, Ron Omic. We begged for food and slowly made our way north to the Free Dutch Republic. The journey was extremely difficult, as the people of the Spanish Netherlands showed us no mercy along the way. The conditions in the prison were so poor that Ron and I were always close to death. After only four days of traveling north, I watched Ron die from starvation and exposure. It was a serious blow to my morale. Ron had become my best friend in these past years of suffering and most of me just wanted to die with him. After his death, I laid in a field for quite some time, certain I was about to meet my maker. Luckily, God blessed me with an iron will, and I picked my half-dead body up and pressed on. I was determined to see my son again. He had lost his mother to fever a year before I left, and now I'm sure he thought I was dead too. Finally, near the Spanish-Netherland border, I caught a break when I met Benjamin Palmer, an Englishman who was living amongst the Dutch as a trader. He was kind enough to let me live with him for a short time so I could once again establish myself and save the capital needed to return home. 
While living in Amsterdam, I met and became friends with several seamen who worked with a new organization called the Dutch East India Company. I was given a position there and before long had the funds necessary to return home. Once back home, after a joyous reunion with my remaining family, I was given the opportunity to find a northern route to Asia. I, along with my reunited son, John, was fascinated and dedicated to finding the northern passage to China. Unfortunately, the weather was unhelpful and ice blocked our way, forcing us to return to England. In 1609, I was again offered a position for my friends at the Dutch East India Company that I could not decline. I was given control of the hearty half moon and once again, we set out to discover the elusive North Passage to Asia. After reaching the thick ice of the Northeast, I decided to sail west towards the new lands of America. We landed on a large island in early July and met some local savages who we were able to trade simple items with. We then continued exploring southward and discovered several large waterways before returning home. It was in 1610 that I was given command of the Discovery and once again set sail for the Americas. It was just west of southern Greenland where I discovered a large bay that I mistakenly thought was the much sought after Northwest Passage. Unfortunately, bad weather trapped the Discovery in the ice and we were forced to hold out through the winter with meager supplies. It was a very difficult time. We were starving and cold, and the crew became extremely anxious to return home. Finally, in the June of 1611, we were able to start the voyage back. My navigator, Mr. Prickett, had become increasingly difficult and disagreeable during the harsh winter months. He continually questioned my decision and seemed determined to turn the rest of the crew against me. Three days into our journey home, he was able to convince most of the men to mutiny. Myself, my son, and my good friends, Green and Jouette, and several other loyal crew members were set adrift in a small open boat with little food, two pikes, two muskets, and a wee bit of powder. The crew said they would blame the entire mutiny on Green and Jouett, and then simply say they died in a fight with the savages on the way home. We paddled up a small river in search of natives, hoping to find more food and shelter. It was here we made a small shelter, where we attempted to get warm before leaving again the next morning. On the second night in our small boat, a strange storm came over us in the wee hours. The sky turned pitch black, the moon was blackened out, and strange lights descended upon us. Our little vessel almost felt as if it was flying as we rushed down the river. The next morning, I was awoken by the sound of our vessel scraping over some shallow river rocks. I couldn't believe my eyes. When I had fallen asleep the night before, all I had seen were snowy landscapes. Now our little shallop hurried down a quick-flowing bright blue river, surrounded on all sides by the largest trees I had ever seen. 
Unlike the cold, barren wasteland of the North Atlantic, we were now in a lush green environment full of life, with the warm sun beating down on us. We steered the small boat to the bank of the river and stepped onto this mysterious land. Excitement filled me, and my only thought was that we had found our way to Asia. I had traveled extensively in the Americas and had never seen anything like this. Could we have been so close all winter long without knowing it? Everything about this land was new to me and my men. The air felt light and crisp, making it easier to breathe. It smelled of rich lavender, and we were completely engulfed by the loud and mysterious sounds of nature. There were numerous animals and insects we had never encountered. Even the moon seemed larger, and in the distance, just behind the moon, there was a new bright star that almost looked like a second moon. In fact, the stars in general were completely unfamiliar, making it impossible to navigate. I decided our best chance of finding some type of civilization was to walk along the river. Eventually, we came to a large lake surrounded by high snow-capped mountains and decided to camp and search for food. We were able to find plenty of fish and game in the area and spent about two weeks stockpiling food that we could take with us. Early one morning, one of the crew was down at the river fetching water when he spotted a huge man, I dare say an actual giant, walking towards him. The giant said nothing and did not respond to his questions. Frightened, he ran back to warn us. We quickly grabbed our weapons and prepared ourselves as the giant walked slowly towards us. Once the giant was about 30 feet from off position, I commanded him to stop. He was absolutely massive, being over 20 feet tall and thicker than five of us put together. He had long, greasy blonde hair, ugly features, and a patchwork of rags for clothing. He demanded all of our food, speaking in a crude dialect I didn't recognize. When we didn't respond, he let out an evil chuckle. I commanded my men to kill him, and we fired two shots from our muskets, one of them striking the giant in the shoulder. Another one of my men tried to stab him with his pike, but the giant simply broke the pike in two and knocked the man in the lake. He then let out an annoyed snarl, and his eyes went wild with anger. He grabbed a thick tree by the trunk and ripped it out by the roots in one swift motion. His strength was unbelievable. He whipped the 40-foot tree into me and my men, sending most of us flying into the lake. Luckily, the smaller top branches had knocked me to the ground, and I wasn't killed from the impact, as were some of the others. As I rolled over and tried to stand up, I saw the giant squash and kill one of my men with the tree. I felt helpless and terrified, and did the only thing I could. I attempted to play dead. I watched as he walked over to our stockpiled fish and started feasting like a hungry animal. I laid on the ground motionless, hoping he wouldn't notice me pinned under the broken branches of the tree. Instead, he laughed at me, taunting me by telling me that everyone was dead and I would soon be joining them. Knowing that he was already aware of my location, I propped myself up searching the surroundings for my son, John, and the rest of the men. 
He continued to eat, eyeing me the entire time. I tried to stand, only to find that the extent of my injuries was worse than I thought. Knowing that my end was near, I began to return his taunts, calling him a savage beast. He continued to eat, ignoring me while he stuffed his face as fast as he could. Just then, I heard the sound of a strange horn coming from the trees behind him. The giant seemed to know what it meant, and he quickly picked up the large tree again. To my utter disbelief, I watched as hundreds of large eagles with small men on their backs flew over to us and started diving down at the giant, shooting him with some type of dart. This made the beast very angry, and he thrashed the tree and its branches in the air, knocking many of the small men to the ground. They continued to attack him, and remarkably, moments later, the giant fell to his knees. His eyes rolled to the back of his head, and he crashed into the ground next to me. I felt a sense of relief, watching in awe as the eagles began to land their little passengers dismounting and climbing over to help me. None of our new friends spoke English, but I did later find out that they had been watching us for a couple of days. They had been concerned with our sudden arrival into their land and mistook us for their enemies, the Taronks. John and two of my crew barely survived the attack from the giant. We were taken to a city called Elden as honored guests where we stayed for some time, learning their history and culture and teaching them of ours. I write this account now as I'm about to leave this land. I have been told many times by King Eldon, who is now my friend, that the trip is very dangerous and that he has never heard of Cathay or China. However, I am determined to continue. I am confident that I will find the route to China as I originally set out to do. I also wish to return to England to report my discoveries and bring justice to those mutineers. Hey everyone, that's it for the first bonus episode. It would be great if you could share my podcast on social media with your friends. Help me get the word out. If I can find more people like you, I'll be able to tell stories full time. Nothing would make me happier. Thanks again for your support, and I'll talk to you again soon. I wanted to give you a quick update on Arona. Did you know I'm still writing this story? That's right, it's a work in progress. Like most of you, my life is busy. Between my full-time job and three little kids, things can get hectic. I wish I could dedicate more time to writing and producing these stories, but I just can't. Not yet, at least. I wanted to release these bonus episodes for you while you wait for me to finish Arona. They used to only be available to my patrons, who are the ones who make this podcast possible and keep it ad-free. You can also now see the full text version of Verona on my Patreon page for free at patreon.com forward slash adamjames. There's even new chapters there. I recently had trouble with my podcast hosting and unfortunately received my first negative ratings because of it. If you could please take a second and give me one of those beautiful five-star ratings on iTunes then I'd really appreciate it. If you want, you could even leave me a review. By submitting those ratings, it increases my chances of continuing this work. Thanks for your help, and I hope you all have a magical week.